If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it, turn with us to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I want to thank the teaching team in our church for helping lead us the last few weeks. I had the opportunity to be part of a family wedding a couple of weeks ago, and then last week got to be at Extreme Camp. And I want to start by sharing with you a little story related to Extreme Camp. Two families in our church have been loving on their neighbors well and over the last few years have connected to several families in our community that are hurting. And as they've walked with these families, they've loved them, they've walked beside them, they've invested in them, they've grown relationships with them and as they were doing that, they they recognized that camp's coming, this could be a cool opportunity to invite their kids. But not only did they decide to invite their kids, they decided to help sponsor their kids to come to camp. And so they invited four of their students to come be part of Extreme Camp with us. Now, again, these kids have gone through a lot of hard stuff in the last few years. And yeah, background for them, really rough. So I'm going to call these two kids that came. They invited four. Two came. Actually, one shows up on Friday. Didn't get, uh, got on the bus, was at camp, call him Mark. Another one didn't show up Friday, so text back and forth with the family. They said, hey, yeah, he, uh, we, we'd love for him to come. And he actually jumped in the car with one of our staffers, Meredith and her family, and came out on Saturday morning. So Mark, and we'll call this other one Johnny. How, how about that? Mark and Johnny show up at camp. Now, again, hard stuff in their life. These families come alongside of them, grow a relationship with them, help sponsor camp. If you give, actually, you help the other half of their sponsorship for these kids to be at camp. I'm studying to preach Romans 9, know about this story, and I'm in the back of the room for worship on Saturday night, and I know that in the room, Johnny and Mark are there, and they don't know Jesus. In fact, I don't know if they had ever heard that there's this new king and a kingdom that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, and if If you repent of your sin, believe in him, and decide to follow him, eternity changes. I'm in the back of the room and I'm looking, there's kids in the room that I know, students that I know who love Jesus, and there's other students I know that are in our church that have not decided to follow Christ. And as I'm watching it, I'm I'm thinking, wait a minute, God, in in your sovereignty, you're looking down and there's, there's some in this room that follow you and there's some in this room that don't follow you. Does that not break your heart? So look in the back of the room. In the back of the room, we had several of our adult sponsors that were praying and I go back there and they're praying for salvation for those that are in the room. Praying for Mark and Johnny. Now, I don't know who's in your life. I'm going to come back to Mark and Johnny as we continue the message, but I'm going to leave Mark and Johnny here for just a second. Say, in your life, you know and you love someone who does not yet know and love Jesus. I think everyone in the room here, maybe, you, maybe you've heard the statistics that today some 155,000 people will die 44,000 of them, according to generous estimates, some 44,000 of them have never heard the gospel. Now, why do I start here? 
If, if you've been walking with us through Romans in chapter 8, there was this beautiful high point in Scripture in Romans chapter 8. Where Paul says, for those of us who know Jesus, who've placed our faith in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It starts with no condemnation and it builds to this beautiful exclamation point that if you missed last week, you need to go and listen to Ryan as he teaches. There's no person, there's no place, there's no thing that can ever separate us from the love of Christ. But those who are in Christ Jesus, and for those who are in Christ, it's beautiful, isn't it? And he uses several words in Romans chapter 8, predestination. An election that are exciting words for those of us who know Jesus. Why? Because we're part of this golden chain that he taught at the last half of chapter 8. That, hey, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. How are they called? They're called through hearing the gospel. We're going to read in chapter 10. Those he called, those he called, he also justifies. Those he justifies, he's going to conform to the image of Jesus. And those he conforms to Jesus, he's going to glorify eternally with God in heaven. And that's awesome for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. But what about Johnny and Mark? What about those that you know and love who are not in Christ? What Paul's going to teach in chapter 9 is some really hard theology. Because what he's going to do is he's going to wrestle with people that he knows and loves who don't know Jesus. Some will write off chapter 9 because they're going to say, well, he's just talking about the people of Israel. But watch as he talks about in chapter 9. He's talking about individuals. And he's going to say even the promises to Israel were given. And he's going to say not to just physical offspring, but to people who would make a spiritual decision. You're going to see in chapter 9 that I think this isn't just talking about Israel. Paul is going to wrestle with those 44,000 people who are dying that don't know Christ today. How can there be a sovereign, loving God? Have you ever wrestled with that? If if, if God died on the cross for our sin, if God saves sinners, what about the people on the other side of the world that have never placed their faith in Jesus that are going to, what about the person next door that may not know Christ? Paul, uh, however you theologically take uh, predestination and election, I I want you to just note the tone that Paul's going to have in chapter 9. If your theology interpretation around what those two words mean does not involve some form of conflict, you don't see the theology the way that Paul does. Because Paul's going to say he's in anguish. He's in anguish related to this. And he's going to ask four questions that I think that all of us in here in the room have. If, if you've heard even talk around God being sovereign and in control on some level, and somehow there, there's predestination and free will, he's, he's going to ask, is God still faithful? Is there a, can there be a faithful God there? Is God just? 
In fact, he's going to ask it, actually flipped on that. Is God unfaithful? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? You ever wrestled with that? I know Jesus. Maybe you do, but someone else, what's? One more piece before we jump in. I need you to know my background in this. I grew up in little Baptist church in East Texas, Bodart Baptist Church. We talk like this, all right? Uh, love the church. Great church. Every sermon ended with, are you going to decide to follow Jesus? And we would sing the song, I have decided, you know this? And then we would wait for people in the room to respond. I, I've grown up, I've grown up always hearing about human responsibility, and it's in the Bible. Come back next week. Chapter 9 is going to end with, in the beginning of chapter 10, which is where we're going to go next week, the human responsibility. That whoever calls, who, whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith. He's talking about human responsibility. But I never sang the song at the end of the service, God has decided for me that I should follow Jesus. <laughs> I never sang that song. So my, getting my head around this and teaching this text has been really hard for me. I know people that skip over this text when they teach the book of Romans. I know pastors that have. And I, frankly, I was tempted to. But my responsibility for, is to teach the Bible, Right? So I want you to see what God's Word says. Stand with me as we read Romans chapter 9. Watch Paul's agony around what he's going to talk about. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. His implication, I'm in sorrow, they're cut off, they're not believers. Verse 6, I'll just start there, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you'd help God, help me to teach something that I don't pretend to fully understand myself. Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment that you would be active as we seek to open your word and see what it says. Help us, Lord, through your spirit, understand it on a way that is supernatural and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Paul's in anguish. Why? Because he recognizes so many that he knows and loves who are Israelites are not saved. He's going to talk about Israel the next three chapters. But in his discussion about Israel, we're going to learn, we're going to see some of how God works in salvation. And this is crazy, crazy talk. 
And again, I don't know where you fall. I'm not trying to teach a side. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm going to try to teach the four questions that Paul asks here, not the five points of Calvinism. That's not what I'm doing. What does Paul ask here? What does this look like? And I'm going to invite you to ask questions. We're going to start a podcast starting tomorrow morning to wrestle with questions throughout this summer that you have, okay? It's already on the screen. You can take that down. If you want to to ask a question even as we talk, you can do that. Text the word question to 96123, and then it will prompt you back. You can ask the question, and we're going to take a few of them, and we're going to... you need to know, again, related to this, I don't pretend to understand it all. If I could understand God, by the way, that should scare you a little bit, but I can't understand it all. Okay, here we go. Y'all with me? Paul is going to say, I'm in agony. There's people I know and love who don't know Christ. I would love to be cut off for their sake, but I'm not. So he asks this question, is God unfaithful to his promises? The people of Israel were included in the promises, right? They're the ones that got the covenant, he just said. Is God unfaithful to his promises? You ever wrestle with God? We just said, saying about his faithfulness. Do you ever wrestle with God? Are you faithful to your promises? Why does my friend not know Jesus? Israel, even on a higher level, is something Paul had to wrestle with. Watch what he says, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God has not failed related to his word. We'll see in the context here the promises that he has given. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's argument here is going to be, he's going to give several examples, that the promises to Israel were not to all of Israel, not to every descendant that was an Israelite, He's going to argue that no, there were select few that God chose and the promises related to them. Y'all with me? Watch what he says. I didn't pick to write, I didn't write this for the record. Y'all know that? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So what does Paul do? He goes all the way back to the patriarchs. He says, remember Abraham was given this promise that through your offspring all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But it wasn't really through any of his offspring. Why? Abraham tried to do it on his own work. He didn't, he's old. He can't have a wife. I mean, he has a wife, Sarah. He can't have a son with his wife. They're both old. So Sarah gives him his servant under his own work. He has a son. This is his offspring. Abraham's children. God, you said you're going to bless my children. God says, no, not that one. God said, I'm going to come back next year. Your old wife is going to have a son through my promise. And that's the one. That's the one the promises apply to. He doesn't stop there. He gives another illustration of Abraham's son. Keep going. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, he must be Isaac, right, was the son from Sarah. 
Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad. Notice this. Neither one of these children could have done anything to earn the promise being given to them. They were inside. Mom. Okay? Had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose in election. Yep, there it is again. It was in chapter 8. Showing up again. There's that work. God chose beforehand. That God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, which is usually contrasted in Scripture with faith, and somehow election and faith go together. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger before they were even born. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I, what does the word there say? What? What? Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What is Paul saying? Um, I, I do think this is really important for you to hear. The Bible is clear that God loves the whole world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Right? Uh, the Bible is clear. Peter writes that, that he does not want anyone to perish. What does this mean? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This is a common Hebrew idiom. What they would say in order to make their point, to to show that this person I am choosing to be of greater importance or greater love, Jesus himself does it at one point. Y'all remember Gospel of Luke? He says, if anyone will come after me and he does not hate his father, his mother. Y'all know this story, right? His children, even his sister and brother, even himself, if he doesn't hate, he cannot be my disciple. Is Paul saying you need to hate your family? I mean, is Jesus, did Jesus say that? No. Jesus is saying you need to choose me to be of higher importance, a greater love than your family, right? In a similar way, And I don't know how this works, church. It's just in the Bible, and Paul is showing us it's all over the place. That God somehow, at one point in time, he chooses this person I'm going to choose to love more. Now, for those of you that love Jesus, right? Guess what? You didn't do it. Nothing you did. He loves you. Now, what does that mean about everyone else? Does that mean that God is unjust? Does this mean God is unjust? Notice again, I don't know where you go with this theology, but if you don't wrestle with that question, you're not seeing what Paul is teaching because Paul is going to say right after this, I know what I just said. Does that mean God is unjust? Now again, does God love the whole world? Does God want, does God We're going to see in chapter 11, he's going to give the rest of the people of Israel another opportunity to believe, and many are going to come to... I don't know how it's going to all work out in the end. I'm just telling you what it said. Okay? So the next question. Is God unjust? Is God unjust in his judgment? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Absolutely not. 
Y'all remember we've seen this phrase in the book of Romans multiple times. He is, this is H-E double hockey sticks, no. Is God unjust? Absolutely not. Now watch how he argues for this. It's, it's, it's confusing at first. It's going to look like he's using cyclical, like, wait, didn't you just say that? I'm asking, is God unjust? Watch what he says. For he says to Moses, he started with the patriarchs, now he's going to the Exodus. He's just going to go through the Old Testament and show us that this has happened all along. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it then depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does anyone want to leave right now? Wait. Is God unjust? Absolutely not. Why is he not unjust? Well, he goes back to Moses. Moses, Moses prays when God is giving the law. This is when they learn justice. He prays, God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, no one can see my face and live. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to cover you there with my hand and I'm going to walk by and I'm going to let you see my backside because you can't see my face and live and there I will declare to you my glory. God's glory declared to man. How was God's glory declared to Moses? God's glory was declared to Moses by saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Wait, how does this relate to if God is unjust or not? Two points. First, what do we all deserve? All of us deserve punishment. Anyone in the room perfect? No? Okay, there's even a volunteer. Yes. No, you're not. Right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The penalty for sin is death. That's what we deserve. God in his justice must judge sin. That's what a good God does. Mercy is undeserved favor. Can a judge be just and merciful at the same time? Here's here's the beauty. What we all deserve is punishment. But God and his sovereignty, what's amazing about the story of Jacob and Esau is not that Esau wasn't chosen. What's amazing in the story is that Jacob was. Do you, I mean, the guy is a manipulator. He's a liar. He's a thief like you and me. And God chooses to give him mercy this beautiful beautiful God but I think second point I think that there was something else that God was wanting to show he was wanting to show Moses that he does good whenever he wants to and we don't control it he says I I will have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, if it ended at verse 16, it would actually be an easier sermon. Verse 17. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, staying with Exodus' story, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. Again, he's showing his glory somehow through this election teaching, his power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he, what's the word? Hardens whomever he wills. Yeah, I would leave right now if I were you. I mean, like, what? I think we need to go back to the story of Moses, the Exodus, to understand this more fully. Just, you go back and you see what happens in the life of Pharaoh. It was not just, and in the Old Testament, it does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What do I think was happening in the story of Exodus? I think is what Paul was teaching us in Romans chapter 1 earlier. That God has shown his glory to the world. He's made it evident through creation. But we have traded his glory for something else. And at one point that God's judgment is active even here and now. How? By him giving us over to what you and I choose to do. He he, Gave him up, Pharaoh, to his hardened heart. Pharaoh had a hard heart. God said, okay, you're going to harden your heart. He was, you see how patient he was? He gave Pharaoh like all these chances to say, I'm going to repent. He did not. Is God wrong? I'm sorry, is God unjust in his judgment? No. He was not unfaithful to his promise. He's always been faithful to his promises. He was faithful to the promises he gave the patriarchs. Is he unjust in his judgment? No, he is not unjust. We have a just God who judges sin, and all of us deserve that. The question is not, is it bad that he judges some people? The question should be, wow, God has shown mercy to people who don't deserve it. Which leads then to this, okay, if God is doing this, how can he hold us responsible? If if there's not some point, again, of your theology around God's election and his predestined, whatever you choose, because it's in the Bible, and I think everyone that studies the Bible says, yeah, it's there, but what at one point... It, sh- it should lead you to wrestle with, well, how does he hold humans responsible? So the third question I think that I ask that he's going to answer, is God wrong to hold man accountable? Is God wrong to hold man accountable? Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? And Paul knows, right, what we're gonna, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? If it's God's will that's playing out, why, how, how's there fault in me at all? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another? By the way, the clay is already dishonorable. We've clarified that because of ourselves and the way that we live. Another for dishonorable 
use. As I was prepping to teach this week, uh, wrestling with, oh my goodness, how do I preach this? I was reading, this is a place that Paul doesn't take us, but again in the Old Testament, with many of you that are reading through the Bible reading plan with us, the story of Job. Job is blessed by God. He's part of what looks like to be the good elect few, right? And then all of a sudden, not based on anything he does, everything's taken away. Job says, Lord gives, Lord takes away. My heart's going to choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he gets in this dialogue with his friends, which, by the way, many of us are in dialogues like this around theological issues. Wow. It's been a while since I've burped in a sermon. There we go. (laughs) There needs to be a light moment right now in this sermon, yes. Wow. So they get in the, they start debating theology, and I, I think God, God, he's he's fine with our questions. I mean, Paul's bringing questions up right now, but the problem becomes when when they actually think that they can challenge God. Here's a verse that just jumped off the page to me. Job 40, verse 2, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Paul asks the question, is God wrong to hold man accountable? And I think he flips it on its head and he says, who are we to hold God accountable? This is God that we're talking about. Now, I, I, I do believe divine Like divine, sovereign power is at work in our world today. I also believe in human responsibility. We'll see this next week as Paul continues to teach. Okay, But but here's, I think, maybe even a bigger problem that we wrestle with when it comes to our theology. We want our theology to revolve around us. You all ever notice that? We want to, and and Paul, like he, he calls it out like it is. I read this week, if the sun were a person, there'd be a lot of people on earth that would want the sun to choose, if you're a good person, why don't you revolve around me for a while? But if the sun were actually a good person and knew how the solar system worked, the sun would require for the rest of the planets to continue to revolve around the sun because if we did not, everything would be destroyed. This is God we're talking about. God does not struggle with idolatry. God knows that the center must remain Him. So then prompts the fourth question. Does God's sovereignty make Him look bad? (laughs) What is God trying to show? If God is faithful to his promise, if he's just in his judgment, if he's right to hold us accountable, I don't think it makes him look bad, but there's times where I feel like it does when I read this theology. Look what he says in verse 22. What if, he says, God desiring to show, God through this theology is wanting to show something to us. To show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That is a hard verse to read, 
Verse 22, I think, helps if you interpret 22 with verse 23, because in verse 23, as you compare and contrast those verses, you'll see that the preparation in verse 22, I believe, was not something God was doing beforehand. It's something we participate in like Pharaoh did. Because this wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, keep reading, in order to make known, he wants to show something. He wants to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. If you believe in Jesus, that's you. Which he, compared to verse 22, different, he has prepared beforehand for glory. That this principle of God electing and predestining is something that he has done to show his glory to those who are objects of his mercy. If that's you, he wants you to see how beautiful he is through this doctrine. What does that mean? Keep going, verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And we see that through this, God is opening the door even wider for others to be exposed to Jesus. Verse 25, as indeed he says to Hosea, he started with the patriarchs, he goes to the Exodus, now he's going to be in the prophets, he's just gone on a journey through the Old Testament in the prophets, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Because of anything they did? No, because of his mercy. You are my people now, he says. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand on the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. He said through Isaiah. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What is Isaiah saying? All of us are sinners. We would be like the worst people on earth apart from the mercy of God stepping into our life. He is glorious. Does that answer all the questions? No. But it answers some of them. Does it become easy? No, Paul is in anguish. Great sorrow, he says, an unceasing anguish. As he looks at the fact that there are people who don't know Jesus. Well, do we need to trust God? He's going to do it all and sit back and watch? No, he's going to say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's going to say in a few days, hey, we, a few weeks when we pray, we, he's going to say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. He's going to send his people out on his mission to save people for his glory. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's going to do. So... Is God unfaithful to his promise? No, by the way, you, if it was up to you, you would be unfaithful. God is not. Is God unjust in his judgments? No, he is not. If it was up to me, I would be. Thank goodness it's up to him, right? Is God wrong to hold man accountable? No, who are we to hold God accountable? 
And he's going to give us now an opportunity to place our faith in Jesus when he shows us through his divine mercy, predestined before the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it make him look bad? No. The glory of God is on display. There's a man in our church, his name's uh, Jim, who shared with me twice over the last few months that Romans chapter 9 showed him for the first time that God loved him first. The love of God showing him the gospel flipped him on his head to understand the grace of God like he had never seen before. There's nothing, you, you could have been inside a mom's stomach like Isaac and Jacob. God loved you if you believe in him. So what are we going to do with this? Well, I'm going to invite the deacons who are going to serve us to come forward. What we're going to do is we're going to remember Christ together. Why are we remembering Jesus right now? The very fact that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sin shows us that it's God that saves sinners, right? It's his work in our lives. We're going to remember what he has done for us. So I'm going to ask the deacons if you'll go ahead and take this and serve them around the room. As they serve you, I'm going to finish the story of Johnny and Mark. Johnny at camp said yes to Jesus. He understood by God's grace and his mercy, God showed him what Jesus had done. And he, divine against God's sovereignty, human responsibility, he then placed his faith in Christ. He was saved. He was one of the uh, 20, one of the 20 that were baptized. Mark had not said yes to Jesus. After he was baptized, there was one last short service that the speaker gave the opportunity for people to respond, and Mark jumped up. He jumped up. Is God faithful? Is is God just? Now, there's still two siblings that didn't show up at camp. Is God faithful and just still? Yes, he is. That's faithful and he's just. His sponsor wrote, he sent pictures, Johnny and Mark actually embracing each other after Mark said yes to Christ. He said, it broke me. We cried together for a good five minutes before he repented and asked Christ to come into his life. He is faithful. God is just. He holds us accountable. What does that mean? To something he has done. It's just placing our faith in what he has done. What a good and glorious God. I'm going to invite you right now to sing as we remember what he has done for us, his work for us. Thank you for joining us today for Worship Online. If you're in our area, we want to invite you to come to physically connect to your local church. We would love to help you to live and love like Jesus alongside of others who are doing the same. If you're from outside of our area, can I challenge you to find a local church in your area that's going to preach the Bible and exalt Jesus? Smash the like button, subscribe, share with friends, and turn on notifications if you'd like to stay up to date with us. And thanks again for joining us.